going to be reading Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. This is the parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruits. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, What will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read that in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Thanks, Sam. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm one of the uh, non-staff leaders here at Christ Church. Um, do keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking a little bit around the context of this parable. Um, but before we dive in, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us today to see you in all your glory, that you would open our hearts to hear your message. Help us to become more like Jesus today. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I quite actually like this time of year. Spring is well and truly underway. The winter is sort of behind us. The weather is sort of a bit better. The flowers are in bloom, and you get the exciting prospect of having a conversation five times a week about how much lighter it is outside (laughs) in the evening. But most of all for me is that Easter is around the corner, and it may be a little bit of a hot take, but I think I prefer in lots of ways Easter over Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong. Christmas is great, big fan. But Easter often feels a bit less stressful. Uh, Like I said, the weather is mostly better. It feels less rushed. And the only gift I need to think about is what sort of Easter egg to get someone. But that kind of got me thinking, eggs are a little bit of a strange thing to give as a gift, isn't it? So this took me down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. And turns out there's quite a bit of debate about their origin. Some would say it's kind of a hangover from a German pagan festival celebrating fertility. But it seems to me most likely how it started here in Western Europe, at least, is because of the old Catholic Church and Lent. Because during Lent, they weren't really allowed to eat eggs. 
when Easter Sunday arrived, they would then exchange eggs with one another to celebrate. And as the practice evolved, they would become painted and given to children and eventually ended up as chocolate. Now, no matter really how they came about as tradition, it's easy to see how eggs can be seen as a symbol for something new. The pregnant promise of creation. Life ready to hatch and break forth. And that's what we see in today's passage. We see that same promise. We see the promise, not of new life, but of new kingdom breaking forth. So in today's passage, we jump right into what's called Holy Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. Much like Advent at Christmas, we can use this week to shape our hearts and minds to prepare us for what is to come. At the start of our chapter here, we can see the story that is actually often remembered today. Today, many churches across the world will celebrate something called Palm Sunday, a day which remembers when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. A story in which Jesus defies convention and shows the type of king that he is. So you see that Jesus enters Jerusalem. He is met by huge crowds laying down palm branches and even their clothes on the road as he rides over them. And as he does so, people shout repeatedly, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Not really your average entrance. This is to signify one thing, that Jesus is king. But all of that really isn't the peculiar thing here. The peculiar thing is that Jesus doesn't ride in on a big war horse as a king normally would. He hitches a ride on a donkey. You see, these snippets of Jesus' life are not just here to document what happened, but to show us who Jesus is and what his kingdom will be like. He is declared as king, yet he comes on something more befitting a peasant. Jesus shows us his paradoxical nature, majesty and meekness, power yet weakness. The story of Palm Sunday is to declare that the king has arrived and this is the type of kingdom he will be bringing. And that's again what we see today in our passage. We're going to see Jesus continue to show us what kind of kingdom he is bringing. So we find Jesus a few days later. We find him teaching in the temple when he's confronted by the religious leaders. And they're not exactly too happy about all the attention Jesus has been getting. So he starts to speak to them in parables. And you'll often notice this when Jesus wants to teach something either either hard to understand or hard to accept. And in this week's passage, it's the latter. Jesus uses these parables to declare his authority and judgment on the religious establishment. This causes such disruption, such upheaval, that the crowd will go from shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, to crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later. So, in today's parable, Jesus makes three shocking claims about his new kingdom that will eventually lead to his arrest. We're going to see that this kingdom has been rejected, that this kingdom has new tenants, and this kingdom is built on the cornerstone. So first, we're going to see that the kingdom has been rejected. So, Jesus starts by saying, uh, telling this parable where the landowner sets up a vineyard with everything it needs. Big walls, a watchtower for security, 
and a wine press to gather the grapes and make the wine. No expense is spared. And as was quite customary at the time, he then rents this out to some farmers who would work the land for him. They would tend the land, they would grow the grapes, they would bring in the harvest, and they would keep around about half of the crop and then give back the other half to the landowner as payment. And then so as harvest time arrived, the landowner sends his servants to go and collect what he's due. However, the servants have other ideas. Instead of giving the landowner his share of the harvest, they capture his servants and beat stone and even kill them. The landowner then sends even more servants, but the same happens again. Not to be deterred a third time, the landowner then decides to send his own son, as surely they would respect him as the heir, wouldn't they? Well, here's the crucial detail we need to take note of. The tenants say to themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. What would cause them to go to such extremes? What was their motives? What was in their hearts? Well, the passage tells us that they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him because they wanted to steal his inheritance. They were so consumed by the desire for something that wasn't theirs that it led them to murder. They thought that if the landowner had no heir, that no one would have claim over them and they could just do what they wanted. And here lies the first thing that Jesus wants us to see. The tenants have rejected the landowner because they thought what they had was theirs. They thought that what was loaned to them belonged to them. They had no regard for the landowner and what was his. They had rejected him. And in telling this story, Jesus calls out the religious leaders for doing the exact same. Let's face it, it doesn't really take much time to realize who the characters in this parable are. We've got God as the landowner, the one who creates the vineyard of Israel and gives everything it needs to be fruitful. And then we have the tenants played by the religious leaders whose job it was to tend to the nation of Israel and help produce its fruit. So through this story, Jesus calls out how over the history of Israel, they have been sent so many servants in the forms of prophets, yet continually rejected them. God has done everything to give them a top-class vineyard. He's put in the wall, the watchtower, and the wine press to enable them to produce fruit. But they rejected him. Israel would often take what God had given them and use it for their selfish gain to follow other gods, kings, or their own self-centered way. It would almost be a little bit like staying forever in an Airbnb that you've rented out, but never paying, locking out the owners, and then just treating it like it's your own home. They thought that what was loaned to them belonged to them. And so ingrained in their mind was the idea that no one else but themselves has claim on the fruit that they rejected anyone sent them to tell them otherwise. I think it can be really easy for us to kind of read this and distance ourselves from this type of behavior. You know, you and I, we would never do anything like that. We, we certainly wouldn't murder someone for checking us out of our Airbnb. But I think Jesus says that we do just the same here as the tenants. We all reject God. 
We can often think the things in our lives are from our own work, not given to us by someone else. As a society, we certainly consider the things that we have as ours to do as we please. No one has the authority to tell me what to do with them, let alone lay claim to them. But if God really is the God who spoke every atom in the universe into being with just his words, then we must come to know that like the vineyard, everything is loaned to you, even our very lives. Like the tenants, like the religious leaders, we have all rejected God. We all struggle against his claim over our lives and want to go our own way. We might not beat and kill people, but we beat and kill the idea of him having claim over our lives and what's been given to us. Jesus wants to call out this way of thinking, to highlight that his new kingdom won't be like this. His new kingdom isn't going to be characterized by a people whose heart reject the one who gave them everything in the first place. But it will be full of people who realize that they don't have actually anything of themselves and that everything that they have has been given to them by God. This new kingdom isn't going to be for one who's, those who want to build their own kingdom, but for ones that realize it all belongs to God. But who will these people be? Who are they? Well, this brings us on to the second shocking thing that Jesus wants us to see, and that this kingdom has new tenants. So I imagine, like me, you've been in a situation where you've got into an argument with someone over something that has really quite irked you, it's really annoyed you. Maybe it's finding that someone has left the milk out overnight or that an important document at work hasn't gone out on time. And then you feel this kind of sense of kind of anger and frustration building up inside you. And just as you start to have a go at someone, they tell you in no uncertain terms that it was actually you. You were the one to leave the milk out. You were the one who forgot to post the document. Well, Jesus pulls a similar Uno reverse card on the religious leaders. I don't think they're very good at detecting shade coming their way, if I'm honest. Because when Jesus asks them, what should the landlord do with the tenants? They reply, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. They pronounce their own judgment. They rightly say that the tenants have been behaving in such a way that is completely unjust. The debt that they owe must be paid. That stealing what's not theirs and rejecting the one who gave it to them simply wrong. It's wretched. And do you see what Jesus says next? You're right. You're going to be thrown out. He says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. I don't think that they can uh, make any mistake that Jesus is talking to them about it now, because that, that their re repeated rejection they're no longer going to be in the vineyard. We must remember, this is a truly shocking thing for Jesus to say to them. As we've already seen, the Israelites, and especially the religious leaders, had the idea ingrained in them that they belonged in the vineyard simply as part of their birthright. And here Jesus says, it's coming to an end. Why? Well, because like the tenants in the parable, 
they're not producing God's fruit. Well, what is that fruit? What are they producing? Well, again, I don't think this would have been really a mystery to the religious leaders because they would have heard this before. You see, in telling this parable, Jesus is knowingly reflecting a famous passage in Isaiah 5, something they would have all been familiar with. In Isaiah 5, Israel is again likened to a vineyard. Again, it's given everything it needs to thrive, but again, it still only produces bad fruit. Isaiah then says that the vineyard will be destroyed and its walls broken down and essentially be thrown into exile. So what's the bad fruit? How does this passage help us? Well, the key verse in Isaiah 5 says this. He, meaning God, looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. You see, Israel's role as God's people was not just to follow God and the law, but it was ultimately to show the world what God is like, to reflect back the glory of God that was given to them, to show the world the character of God. That's the fruit. That's the fruit of the vineyard. But Israel just didn't do it. Instead, they repeatedly rejected God. So Jesus says the time has come. The time has come for new tenants. Jesus says that this new kingdom will be opened up to a new people of God who will produce its fruit. One that isn't bound by geography or ethnicity. One that will be made up of all types of people from all walks of life, no matter what they've done or who they are. Again, we must realize this is huge. Jesus says his new kingdom will be given to what we know as the church. And although the vineyard has new tenants, it still has the same purpose and calling to produce fruit. We have the same privilege and responsibility to reflect what God is like to the world. But we must learn from this bad example. The religious leaders were often accused by Jesus as being all show but no substance, weighing people down with extra rules and regulations simply to try and look good rather than dealing with the heart. And like with the religious leaders, I think we too can get a bit bogged down with external appearances and circumstances rather than producing fruit. I know I can often find myself being caught up in busyness, doing lots of things, but am I growing in godly character to show others what he's like? I think an easy way for us to examine our hearts and attitudes is through reflecting on our prayer life. Do you really ask yourself, how am I growing in my ability to reflect who God is, rather than what thing can I ask God to help me with? Do we think more about doing things, external things, than growing and producing fruit? Again, I know I often find my prayer requests revolve more around God helping me in practical ways, such as perhaps maybe finishing my coursework or coping with a busy week or 
a stressful situation to go away. Now, I'm not saying that these are bad things to pray for. God is able and does care about even the smallest details in our lives. But do we often always pray for our hearts in those situations? Do we also pray for God reflecting fruit in those situations? Be it perseverance, mercy, joy, faithfulness, gentleness, peace, patience, self-control, goodness, kindness, love. So that those around us can see what he's like. I know that some of my most encouraging conversations are when people are doing this. That despite their difficult circumstances, they are seeing the fruits in their hearts. So many people in our church have been wonderful, wonderful examples to me in that. And I think that in the vineyard, God allows these situations to happen so that we have the opportunity to produce fruit. So rather than perhaps simply praying for that situation to end or help in something practical, why not also pray for God reflecting fruit? whilst you wait. But then arises another problem. We know that we can often find ourselves not producing fruit as we should. Are we going to be thrown out like the other tenants? How do we produce fruit without the arrogance of thinking everything is ours and also without the constant fear that we might be kicked out if we don't meet up to a certain standard? Do we just try harder, just really dig deep? Well, what we need to do is build on the cornerstone. My wife Anna and I have recently had some building work done and we've had the quite uh, expensive experience of truly knowing how important it is to have a secure foundation. So, as it turns out, unbeknownst to us, Our house is actually built on an old quarry, so the ground underneath is pretty unstable. Uh, It's essentially just a mess of soft rock thrown into a big crater. So rather than having to dig down like a normal two-meter trench uh, to build a foundation, we had to get it piled. And again, before all this, I just thought piles were sore things you got on your bottom. But essentially, what they really are are big metal straws that are filled with concrete that you hammer into the ground so that the bottom of it can rest on something strong and stable to support the structure above. To add insult to injury for our particular case, rather than going down four meters, they had to go down 12. 12 meters, yeah. So why am I bringing up my grievances about our building project? Um, I think it's because mainly because they're truly coming to appreciate how integral, how crucial having a strong foundation really is. Might sound fairly obvious, But without it, the building will crumble. And I think Jesus is saying something very similar here about his new kingdom. Jesus says that he is building something new. He is building his new kingdom, the church, and he is the foundation. And he says this by referring to himself as something slightly odd. He refers to himself as the cornerstone. Now, it's probably not a a term that we often use in day-to-day conversation, perhaps outside singing a few worship songs, but what is it? What is a cornerstone? 
Well, the cornerstone was the stone of the foundation, which basically two walls would sit and be aligned to. A stone that was so essential to the structural integrity of the whole building. Builders back in those days would scour and search over and over again to find the perfect stone because they knew without it, the rest of the walls would just collapse. And so Jesus makes his third shocking claim that God's new kingdom will be built on him as the foundation. He says the stone the builders rejected, Jesus, has become this crucial cornerstone. Jesus says that the stone that was prophesied about in the Psalms and again in Isaiah is him. He is the precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. As it says in Isaiah 28, he is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. But you ask, how, how does this help us? How does this help us produce fruit without arrogance or insecurity? Well, it's only in Jesus, the cornerstone, that we can produce fruit without the weight of our self-righteousness or shamefulness bringing us down. You see, in every other religion, every other worldview says that to produce fruit and grow, you have to work harder. You have to meet a certain standard, and if you can't, well, then just simply dig a little bit deeper. And this will cause you to be one of two ways. First, if you think you meet the standard, you'll be arrogant, self-righteous, you'll be puffed up. You'll feel confident and have boldness in your status, but you'll look down on those who don't reach the standard. On the other hand, if you don't feel like you're meeting the standard, you'll feel ashamed and insecure. You'll have sympathy with those who are also failing, but you'll have absolutely no confidence in your security. Trying to produce fruits from our own work, trying to build on our own foundation, is like trying to build on your own old quarry. Or to put it how Jesus puts it earlier in Matthew 7, it's like building your house on sand. It's just not secure. It's not going to last. The walls will come down. But what if rather than trying to build on your own foundation, rather than trying to produce fruit by just simply trying harder, you built on Jesus, the cornerstone, the rock. Now, this is the foundation of the new kingdom. We produce fruit, reflecting God's character to the world, not through trying harder, not through trying to seize what's not ours, not through trying to build on our own foundation, but by resting on the one who knowingly came into the vineyard and died in our place. To save people like you and me, even though we would reject him, beat him, and crucify him. And he did all that so that not only would we be forgiven, but that we could actually share in the riches of his inheritance. Like the tenants, we really don't have a leg to stand on. None of us do. We deserve to meet a wretched end. But in Jesus, the son is sent into the vineyard. He is the one who takes the wrath, the righteous justice of God on himself, so that debt of rejecting him can be paid and we can enter into his kingdom. That's the kind of king Jesus is. Full of majesty is the one who created everything, yet meekness 
to come vulnerable and lowly. Power to come and bring a new kingdom, yet weakness to come to die. You see, the tenants didn't really need to try and steal the inheritance. It's given. We, like the tenants, deserve to be thrown out. But through the Son, Jesus, who comes to die in our place on the cross, we can be welcomed into his new kingdom. You see, it's only in Jesus, the cornerstone, where the two walls of assurance and humility meet. Only in Jesus does perfect justice and perfect mercy meet. Only in Jesus can you have the assurance of your security whilst being humble and forgiving. Jesus says, either build on him or be crushed by the weight of trying to pay off the debt owed. Build on him or be broken by God's righteous justice. Only in Jesus can we be built up. Every other way, you'll be crushed. It's in coming and recognizing that all we have is not ours. So we can't build on our own foundation, but only the cornerstone, that his life-giving spirit will dwell in us and will cause fruit to grow. By abiding in the vine of the vineyard, we will grow in godly character and reflect what he's like to the world, full of both assurance and humility. You'll have peace in unpeaceful times. You'll have deep joy, even in sorrow. You'll have kindness, even in cruelty. And if you're struggling to see the fruit in your life at the moment, can I just encourage you to just take the time each day to set your footing on a solid foundation of the cornerstone rather than on the sand. Jesus says you will produce fruit. In a few moments, we're going to remember the son coming into the vineyard to die for us by the way Jesus taught us, by taking bread and wine. Now, this isn't just some sort of ritual that we do, some passive act, but it's a visceral, tangible way in which that we can remember that although we deserve to meet a wretched end, Jesus came into the vineyard and had his body broken, had his blood spilt for you and me. It's that in the cornerstone, God's righteous justice and God's perfect mercy could meet. Through the bread and wine, we can take into us this new kingdom. We can take into us the fuel in which we need to produce God's fruit. So as you crack into your Easter eggs next week, remember the new kingdom Jesus brings. Remember the life bursting forth that was brought about by his death and resurrection. Remember that even though we've all rejected God, the king willingly comes to the undeserving and dies in our place. So that not only would our debt be paid, but we could share freely in the riches of his inheritance. Stand on this truth and you won't be able to stop producing fruit.